Today, with others across the nation, we honor the achievements and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. We also reflect on the path that lies ahead toward equality, justice, and peace. I am delighted that we'll do that together by hearing from historian Carrie Greenwich about a civil rights pioneer whose significance is being revisited and reappreciated in Boston and in African-American political consciousness across the United States, and let me add, also across the world. Carrie Greenwich received her doctorate in American Studies from Boston University. She is currently co-director of the African-American Trail Project through Tufts Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. She also serves as interim director of the American Studies Program through Tufts Department of Studies and Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora. Her scholarship explores the role of African-American literature in the creation of radical black consciousness, particularly as it relates to the African diaspora during the early 20th century. African-American elections in the urban north and democratic populism during the progressive era. She has taught at BU and at UMass Boston and has contributed her expertise to the Wiley Blackwell Anthology of African-American Literature, the Oxford African-American Studies Center, and PBS. Dr. Greenwich is here today to share her new book about William Monroe Trotter, the first biography in more than 45 years, which is on the Boston Guardian editor and activist. Black Radical explores the history of racial thought and African-American political radicalism in New England at the turn of the century. As we will hear, it reestablishes Trotter's vital, essential place next to Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Martin Luther King Jr. in the pantheon of American civil rights heroes. Please join me in giving Dr. Kerry Greenwich a warm and very enthusiastic welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Barbara Lewis. Um, worked for you at the Trotter Center at UMass Boston, a wonderful and invaluable resource um, when I was teaching at UMass Boston. I want to thank the uh, Boston Athenaeum for having me. I did much of my primary research for the book uh, in here in the early 2000s when I was working uh, for the um, uh, National Park Service. So this place has a special place in my heart, so thank you so much. Um, I'm going to uh, begin by just giving a brief outline of Trotter's life. Um, I'm then going to talk a little bit about how a reevaluation of his life and Black Boston's history in particular asks us to reimagine the possibilities of African American um, radical politics. And then I want to make sure I open it up for questions so that people can ask questions about the book. When Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about Boston, he called the city his second home. Although this may seem like a contradiction, given Boston's reputation as either, quote, the most racist city in America, according to Bill Russell, or, quote, the most racially liberal place, according to John F. Kennedy, the city of the Cabots and the Lowells has a signal place in African-American and African diasporic history. 
Although the first enslaved Africans arrived in Boston during the 1630s, their presence in the Commonwealth defied popular conceptualizations of freedom and unfreedom, to use the words of scholar Jared Hardesty. A free woman of color, Zipporah Potter Atkins, might have been the first person of African descent to purchase a house lot in 1670, but Massachusetts Bay was the first British North American colony to establish slavery in its 1641 body of liberties, as, uh, as Professor uh, was, just, was just alluding to. Boston might have been the first American city to legally desegregate its public schools in 1855, but it was also the site of rabid anti-black riots during desegregation battles of the 1970s. Massachusetts might have elected the first black members of the state legislature, the first black popularly elected senator, and the first black governor since Reconstruction, but Boston is still known as a place where the median wealth of its black citizens is $8, while the median wealth of its white citizens is nearly 2,000 times as much. By the time Martin Luther King Jr. graduated from Boston University School of Theology in 1955 then, his sentiments about the city's defining role in his own life, much like the history of black Boston generally, are notable for their complexity. A man who remembered Boston fondly as the city where he met his future wife and learned about Gandhi's nonviolent practices from the country's first black dean at a predominantly white institution, being Howard Thurman. King also remembered Boston as a place where, quote, apathy and white liberal complacency, end quote, were as powerful as Southern manifestos and Confederate flags. When we look at King then, we must place him in the historical, cultural, and political context of a black radical tradition that has endured and thrived even in places like Boston and New England that we imagine to be overwhelmingly white and geographically restricted to Harlem, Chicago, and other international centers of black culture. In fact, when King arrived in Boston in 1951, the city's most radical, influential, and significant black editor, William Monroe Trotter, had only been dead for 17 years. Trotter's biography then requires that we expand our understanding of blackness, of radical black history, and of the legacies of this history in public commemoration and contemporary struggles against injustice. I have a quote up here from Robin D.G. Kelly about the black radical imagination, which we can uh, discuss um, after I am finished. But I want to begin with a story. On August 21, 1902, William Monroe Trotter led a group of black lawyers, ministers, and community leaders to the Massachusetts State House right across the street. The group was there to protest the recent arrest and upcoming extradition of a North Carolina field hand named Monroe Rogers. Trotter and his group wanted Governor Winthrop Murray Crane to prevent Rogers' return to North Carolina for arson. One year earlier, in 1901, two black boys, ages 14 and 17, were brutally lynched in Greensboro while sitting in jail on vagrancy charges. It was no wonder then that Rogers fled his home outside of Charlotte for his mother's house in Massachusetts after confronting his landlord over unpaid wages. The white man's barn mysteriously burned down days after the confrontation, and there was no guarantee that the 22-year-old black man would receive a fair hearing. Rogers fled to Brockton, where he sought refuge with family and kin. He was arrested there one year after his arrival, after North Carolina's safety commissioner alerted Massachusetts of Rogers' whereabouts. Trotter mobilized grassroots protest that prompted the meeting with Governor Crane. The group argued that failure by North Carolina to enforce the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, 
as evidence in the state's unwillingness to investigate or prosecute the recent lynching of the two teenage boys, Trotter said that this prevented Rogers from receiving a fair trial. Let Massachusetts remember her history, the Guardian proclaimed, and protect those who seek refuge from Southern barbarism. In proclaiming the radical black roots of antebellum abolition as justification for 20th century demands for Monroe Rogers' protection, Trotter shows the current historiographical trend that recognizes the radical nature of antebellum black activism. Martha Jones, the historian, for instance, places black demands at the center of antebellum conceptions of citizenship, while Kelly Carter Jackson, another historian, calls for a re-examination of strategic violence in 1850s black abolition. And yet, back then, in 1902, the notion that militant black abolition could be repurposed to serve 20th century demands for radical civil rights was anathema to the era's racial conservatism. Indeed, public black radical protest was so distasteful in 1902 that the Boston Globe accused Trotter of, quote, straining things when he connected Massachusetts' responsibility to Rogers to the state's antebellum personal liberty laws. The Attorney General was also dismissive of comparisons to the black radical past. He ruled that Massachusetts had no legal basis for detaining or protecting Rogers. Booker T. Washington, president of Alabama's Tuskegee Institute and the most powerful black man in the country at the time, confirmed white insistence that Rogers should return to North Carolina, quote, for judgment. The school principal personally contacted North Carolina's governor to advise him against, quote, giving in to the unreasonable demands of colored Boston's tiny but vocal minority led by that rabid man from Harvard named Trotter. In response, Rogers' attorneys, much like the radicals of old, filed a writ of habeas corpus, arguing that North Carolina improperly indicted Rogers after he fled the state. Show some of them here. Governor Winthrop Murray Crane, Anne Monroe Rogers, and William Monroe Trotter. Unfortunately for Monroe Rogers, conservative racial accommodation triumphed over radical black demands for, this, for his protection. On August 30th, as the Attorney General reviewed the writ, Brockton police officers who were supposed to transport Rogers from Boston instead put him on a train back to North Carolina. There he stood trial for arson and attempted murder despite lacking an attorney, and even though the white man whose barn he supposedly burned failed to testify or even show up for trial. Rogers was ordered to solitary confinement in the state penitentiary for a minimum of 15 years, but died of septic pneumonia four years later in 1906. Although Rogers was not saved by Trotter, the Guardian, or grassroots black protest, his case signaled a shift in local black political consciousness that Trotter and the Guardian helped foment into a national movement of black radical independence. Rogers' case occurred at the same moment that many northern black communities questioned blind loyalty to what was then called the Party of Lincoln. Although President Theodore Roosevelt earned white northern progressive accolades and white southern violent scorn when he invited Booker T. Washington to dine at the White House, Trotter pointed out that the GOP had done little for, quote, the colored people since the collapse of radical reconstruction over 20 years before. Rather than enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments of the Constitution, which established equal protection under federal law and prevented denial of the franchise on the basis of, quote, race, color, or previous condition of servitude, Roosevelt, like McKinley and Arthur before him, focused on building lily-white Republican support in the North and in the South. 
The result, Trotter argued, was a Republican Party that bore little resemblance to the, quote, consent of the governed radicalism of Senators Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens. The only way to prevent cases like Rogers from happening again, Trotter concluded, was for northern black voters to recognize their power to swing local elections away from any party or candidate who betrayed black demands. As The Guardian told readers soon after Rogers' kidnapping, the Negro has a right to expect the national government in the hands of the Republicans of that party to which the Negro has been loyal at every cost will take positive steps to enforce the Constitution and restore to the Negro his rights as a man and as a citizen. So who was William Monroe Trotter? Why was he alone among contemporaries in protesting unapologetically, persistently, and radically against racial conservatism and white liberal apathy in the face of radical Reconstruction's betrayal at the turn of the last century? Most importantly, how does his use of the Guardian to foment grassroots radical black politics demand scholarly reconceptualizations of the black press, black political independence, and the possibilities of black community activism during the period that historians refer to as the long nadir at the turn of the last century. Oops. William and Monroe Trotter was born in 1872, the year that liberal Republicans broke from their radical colleagues to oppose federal enforcement of the Reconstruction Amendments. He died exactly 62 years later as Democratic President Franklin D. Roosevelt presided over an administration that fundamentally changed the relationship between federal policy and the American economy. Book ended as he was between the failed promise of radical reconstruction and the racial limitations of New Deal liberalism, William Monroe Trotter's life represents the radical possibilities of northern black politics rooted in antebellum militant abolition. Trotter's life also reconceptualizes black radicalism as a tradition that thrived and existed in the urban, predominantly white Northeast, as well as the unforgivable blackness of the rural South. When Trotter started The Guardian then, his vow to, quote, hold a mirror up to nature was not hyperbolic. As his grassroots public Monroe Rogers protest illustrates, The Guardian used powerful text, imagery, cartoons, and editorials to reinvigorate black-led radical demands for racial justice defined, dictated, and directed by what he called the colored people themselves. Consequently, during The Guardian's first decade of circulation, William Monroe Trotter and colored Boston became synonymous with Negro militancy, to use Booker T. Washington's term, a reputation that relied on the political mobilization of the genteel poor. The majority of African-descended people in greater Boston and in northern cities across the country who rejected the Washington Du Bois dialectic, already developing in progressive America's racial consciousness. These genteel poor, alienated from the self-professed race men and race women who claimed to represent, quote, the in interests of the Negro, these genteel poor understood the devastation wrought by Reconstruction's bloody collapse, Southern disfranchisement, and violent segregation. The Guardian spoke to these people, and the people, in turn, helped transform the Guardian into a cultural and political institution through which, quote, the colored people themselves, with Trotter as their coach, defined racial justice and civil rights on their own often radical terms. Monroe Trotter used the Guardian as a grassroots organizing tool, long before the term reached social movement consciousness. 
This grassroots political organization created a movement toward political independence that affected Boston's political landscape and eventually inspired what white political commentators called the New England example. Black voters exercising their dissatisfaction with the national GOP's racial negligence through local election of populist Democratic legislators. Additional, additionally, Trotter's insistence that black radicals interrogate rather than accept as inevitable the existing American party system, system provides a blueprint for 21st century activists who argue today in 2020 um, that our two-party political system is fundamentally ill-equipped to address the economic and social needs of the people. As one of the first black editors to organize northern black political nonpartisanship as a sustainable and legislatively significant, for a time at least, civil rights strategy, Trotter fueled a political independence movement that borrowed heavily from the Negro movement of his father's generation. His father is in this slide. In Monroe's hands, however, the movement spread far wider and had a far greater impact than anything his father produced. As his personal life suffered from the loss of income brought on by the end of his real estate business and the high cost of running The Guardian, Monroe Trotter emerged as a unique political voice across the black north. Although never elected to office, which he ultimately never wanted, Trotter's grassroots movement pushed Massachusetts racial politics further left than the rest of the country, while continuing to mobilize black northerners who were increasingly outraged by the impotence of their professed spokesmen. List of some of these people he worked with: Clement Morgan, uh, first uh, graduate of both Harvard Law School and Harvard College; William Henry Lewis, uh, Black Assistant Attorney General of the State of Massachusetts; William Montrud Trotter in the middle; William H. Scott, who was a uh, minister in Woburn, Massachusetts; um, and Archibald Henry Grimke, who became a uh, ambassador to um, Santo Domingo in 1894 and was a graduate of Harvard Law School. Picture of Trotter's um, bir birthplace, which is his family's farm in Chillicothe, Ohio. In the uh, question and answer, I can go more into his family background, but this is the last surviving photo of the family farm, which was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Um, it has recently, this was taken in the 90s, it has recently been demolished as a safety hazard. Finally, at a time when political pundits of all stripes proclaim a new age of American blackness, in which divisions of language, region, socioeconomic status, and ethnicity complicate assumptions about African-American political cohesion. My research for my book illustrates that the Guardian's notion of colored people, and Trotter was very adamant that he used those words after taking a poll from African-American readers of the Guardian. They said they wanted the term colored people. Um, his notion of colored people has been and ought to continue to be a source of political strength, not weakness. After all, as Monroe Trotter inculcated his community of fellow Bostonians and Guardian readers with new Negro consciousness based on black-led civil rights protests and political independence, he created an alliance with Caribbean-born radicals across greater Boston, New York, the Caribbean, and in Liverpool. This alliance led to the Liberty League Congress, the picture that you see here, the only civil rights organization to meet during World War I, and the one chiefly responsible for introducing Leonidas Dyer's anti-lynching bill to northern congressmen in the 1920s. Far from a leader in decline, William Monroe Trotter's presentation of what he called the demands of the colored people in Paris and his support for Reds in Boston and Harlem placed civil rights within the legislative conscience of D.C. for the first time since Reconstruction during the 1920s when he supposedly in decline. 
Although the Dyer Bill did not pass, Trotter's Radical Liberty League and his demands for, quote, colored world democracy on an international scale placed new Negro radicalism at the center of the Wilson administration's debate over a new world order. The last 15 years of Trotter's life provide a glimpse into the transnational implications of the editor's civil rights career. Far from the conservative provincial outlier of white rage and working class rebellion depicted in traditional accounts of Red Summer and its immediate aftermath, colored Boston was a hotbed of new Negro internationalism committed to the often conflicting streams of black nationalism, communism, and socialism within black politics. And Trotter was very adamant that he was none of these things, but he was all of them at once. Trotter's life story complicates the notion, long accepted in American history and African-American studies, that the Washington Du Bois dialectic defined black politics and culture during the racial nadir, that black people in the urban Northeast were marginal to the grassroots radical politics during the post-Reconstruction era, and that the black radical tradition prior to the communist black belt thesis of the 1930s can be reduced to either the pan-Africanism of Alexander Crummel, the back-to-Africa impulse of Marcus Garvey, or the socialism of A. Philip Randolph. Trotter's use of the Guardian to foment black radical politics, as illustrated in the 1902 Monroe Rogers case and countless other grassroots rebellions before his death in 1934, demands that scholars of the black radical tradition, and indeed scholars of American politics, and the black press re-examined the role of the black north and the content of black newspapers as significant sites of this tradition. Finally, on the importance of biography and community stories in African-American and American history scholarship, I will end with a quote by Nell Irvin Painter, who argues that biography is a key to understanding our history, a framework for framing uh, complicated stories of race and politics that might not fit into what it is that we think race and politics look like. She states, quote, beyond even the most finely tuned categories lies something exceeding race, class, and gender, individual subjectivity. I remain convinced, says Painter, that historians should keep in sight the fundamental lessons of psychology and psychoanalysis that all people, even people who describe themselves primarily as raced or gendered, are individuals, that individual subjects develop within families, that families need not be related biologically, that attachment does not necessarily connote positive feeling, that attachment and grief do not stop at social barriers of color and class. Families at every economic level inculcate the finest and basest of values. Thank you.